0: Good afternoon and welcome. This is a new series that we will be starting here at Alternate Media. My name is Seamus and I will be specifically going over the New Testament uh, in my portion. And we will be starting at the Gospel of Mark. And there's a reason for that. I want to start at the Gospel of Mark because it is the oldest one written, it's the earliest document we have. That being said, it meets a certain historical criteria of authority essentially because it's the closest one to the original source um as far as first-hand accounts are concerned it therefore has more authority than the later ones that were written uh, because it's a little closer and then there are two other criterias at which we will uh, use historical reference to the authority of a particular document um, and those are dissimilarity which is to say uh, that if it goes against what you would want to say in a particular narrative or point um then it's most likely a true thing that was said Uh, an example of this would be if a mother testifies against her son in court um, logic would have it that a mother would not want to do such a thing unless that thing were true even though it's detrimental to her kid um but she's doing it anyway so the idea is a mother's testimony against her child holds more weight than anybody else's because of the law of dissimilarity and so that's another uh criteria we we will use historically as well as multiple attestation which is to say that independent documents um from independent sources that don't know each other and are not working together uh all say that the same thing happened with uh with the same details and then you can therefore say that it meets the criteria of multiple attestation thus making it more authoritative. Um, I will be approaching the Gospels from a much more historical perspective. That being said, uh, if there are things that, um, which I don't believe that there are personally, but if there are things that seem to contradict, um, or, uh, don't, uh, hold up to the other criteria, I won't be using them as a reference, uh, for the authority of a particular teaching, um, so to speak. So, um... I, I believe in the whole Bible, the whole Bible is true, and I need to get that straight first and forward, uh, first and foremost. Um, but from a strictly scholarly perspective, I will be only using those sources that meet these criteria. That way, um, it is, uh, that way these teachings will hold a little bit more depth. You can go in and hopefully take these things, whatever you've learned from them, uh, and in conversation with other men, uh, women who might be more skeptical and only want to rely on scholarly resource, you can do so with what I'm giving you here, because it meets the criteria that all scholars would agree uh, in order to make a particular story or account true. So we're going to start in Mark. Mark, once again, the first one ever uh, written, as, as is uh, traditionally uh, accepted by most scholars, just about all scholars, in fact. And so it holds more authority. It's a much simpler written gospel. It's one of the shortest ones. Um, and, uh, that's just by virtue of the fact that it is the first one. The later ones are expounding upon some of the same information, which is why they get a little bit lengthier as time goes on. And then we have the gospel of John, which is not synoptic. It is a product of its own, um, written most likely by the disciples of John, uh, around 90 plus AD. So, starting in the gospel uh, of Mark. I'm reading from a Tree of Life uh, version, the Holy Scriptures. It's a Messianic uh, translation, so it essentially is a, a regular English translation, but maintains the Hebrew names um, being transliterated as they would be pronounced in Hebrew. Um, for example, the very first verse, Mark 1, verse 1, The beginning of the good news of Yeshua HaMashiach ben Elohim, uh, which is... Uh, Translated would be Jesus, the Messiah, Son of God. So, Yeshua HaMashiach ben Elohim. As Isaiah the prophet has written, Behold, I send my messenger before you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of Adonai, and make his paths straight. That comes from uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. It is important... um, To make a a distinction here, actually, because we we have this uh, question come up later on about um, about, uh, Elijah, the prophet, heralding the coming of the Messiah. So I will take this time to explain the two messiahs concept. In Judaism, there are two messiahs, not one. Um, You have Messiah, son of Joseph, who would be otherwise known as the suffering servant, and then you have Messiah ben David, or the conquering king. So, in a particular Jewish mindset, uh, you're actually awaiting for two different messiahs. Uh, that being said, Elijah is supposed to herald the coming of Messiah David. Isaiah says it's a voice crying in the wilderness. This is We assume that it's Elijah and, and we get that indication when later on Yeshua says uh, that he came in the spirit of Elijah, um, but the prophecy says a voice crying out in the wilderness. John is the one of the voice crying out in the wilderness which will herald the coming of Messiah ben Joseph, um, the first coming of the Messiah. Now, of course, as Messianic believers, we believe that the both the two messiahs are the same person, just coming at different times, which makes sense because then we have the resurrection, so when he comes back, he's the conquering king. Uh, but in traditional Judaism, it is two different persons, a suffering servant who will suffer and die. Uh, he will be more like a prophet. He will come and... Uh, teach the laws and the Torah and correct the things that have been um, misconstrued over time, make those corrections, and then later on a Messiah and David will come back and restore the state of Israel uh, and, and be a conquering king, ushering in the millennial era. So, moving on. Um, John appeared, immersing in the wilderness, proclaiming an immersion-evolving repentance for the removal of sins. Um, so, baptism is actually a very common practice in Judaism. We call it a mikveh. Um, and you would mikvah for any number of reasons. If you were made unclean for any, any reason in order to enter into the temple, you had to be made clean. Part of that process is undergoing a mikvah. There's also a mikvah uh, for conversion. If you were to convert legally to Judaism, um, there is a mikvah that comes with that, a baptism, so to speak. Um, the watery grave, as it's called. So... This baptism is only different in that it's a baptism of repentance or immersion, a, a mikvah of repentance. Uh, most mikvahs are, have something to do with a, a, a law of uncleanliness or a law of conversion of some sort, um, but this one is a, a baptism of repentance. So it's basically, it's the same thing. There's even a blessing for this particular uh, type of baptism, a, a mikvah. Um, but uh, the, the unique thing is he is not a person of authority doing this particular style of baptism he's not an ordained uh, rabbi Um, so uh, we are also talking about a particular time in history in which uh, the 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 early first century was obsessed with purity laws Um, this is evident in the fact that there are tons of um, baptism pools all over the city around this time and all over other cities in which it would not be necessary to have a baptism because the idea is a baptism gets you into the temple so why would you really care um, about making sure that you're in a pure state so that you could go on temple grounds if you live nowhere near the temple so um, but there seems to be an obsession with purity because they were anticipating a coming of the messiah at around this time and um, the idea would be to live in a state of purity so that you could uh, be alive for this, for this event. Uh, basically, long story short, and I don't have time to get into it here, but the book of Daniel. <laughs> um, moving on, um, all of the Judean countryside was going out to him, and all of the Jerusalemites, as they confessed their sins, were being immersed by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothes made from camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. Uh, and he said, After me comes one who is mightier than I. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie his strap of his sandals. I immerse you with water, but he will immerse you with the Ruach HaKodesh, uh, or the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's important that we call it the Ruach HaKodesh instead of the Holy Spirit uh, because it means something in Hebrew that it doesn't mean in English or Greek. And uh, the, the Ruach means like breath. Um, and then Hakodesh means uh, holy. So the holy breath uh, of God. Um, so it's, a, it's the power of God's word, if that makes sense. It's the same spirit that was uh, used to fill the Messiah. It was used to fill Adam. Um, the, the Holy Spirit as we know it is a concept of being filled with the breath of God. Um, more on that later. In those days, uh, Yeshua came from Nazareth in the Galilee and was immersed by John in the Jordan. Uh, Just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens rip open, the Ruach, as a dove coming down upon him. And there came a voice from the heavens, You are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. That instant, the Ruach drives him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he he was with the wild beasts and the angels were taking care of him. Something I want to point out here, actually, is there is no birth narrative in Mark. The earliest uh, gospel doesn't seem to care about the birth of the Messiah in any way. It doesn't seem to care about the virgin birth narrative. That that was something that was later expounded upon. Um, It it was a developed uh, theology, so to speak. But the early believers didn't see that as a level of importance in any way. That it may have been a messianic prophecy but it wasn't one that was directly required if that makes sense so another thing within Judaism um, birthdays don't matter in any way in uh, in Judaism usually a birthday is actually a bad omen Uh, the only time you see birthdays being mentioned in in any of the Old Testament writings is for something bad so they tend to shy away from those things. It was seen as more of a pagan practice anyway, and not really something that that Jews need to partake in. It's not mentioned anywhere um, for Jews to do, so they just don't. What's more important, rather, is actually your bar mitzvah, your rebirth day, uh, and they get that from the the Exodus story. Uh, more on that later. <laughs> Saying that a lot. Um, but yes, yeah, so the the ruach comes uh, from the sky. We're we're all familiar with this particular story. Usually, we're familiar with it coming more from Matthew or from or from John. But um, once again, Mark being the earliest, we will be using Mark as the as the foundation for the rest of the Gospels uh, because it's more authoritative that it was earlier written. So now, after uh, John uh, was put in jail, Yeshua came into the Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. Now is the fullness of time, he said, and the kingdom of God is near. Turn away from your sins and believe in the good news. Okay, so there, there's a particular concept uh, within Judaism. All of the all of the prophets had the same message. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. Repent being tshuva or to turn back. To turn back to the Torah because the kingdom is coming. Um, and it is understood within Judaism that the Messiah, son of Joseph would come in the prophetic form. So what is the good news? The good news is repent for the kingdom is at hand. That is exactly the same message as the rest of the prophets. And the reason that's a good thing, why is that a good, why is that doesn't sound very good in a Jewish mindset, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The idea is to bring heaven down to earth. So if, if repent for the kingdom is at hand, The good news is it's coming down soon, and that's a good thing. Uh, The goal within Judaism is not to get to heaven. The goal in Judaism is actually to bring heaven down here, to return to the state of the Garden of Eden where we can walk alongside God in our physical form. That was the original intention. We're trying to get back to that, and the Messiah is going to help us get there. So that's the good news, and that's also the prophetic news. And so nothing has really changed with Jesus' message as opposed to, like, Isaiah's message or Jeremiah's. Um, The difference is this is the Messiah now, and so the message is a little stronger. But as far as for the prophets, it was more or less the same. Uh, So moving on, passing along the Sea of Galilee, uh, he saw Simon and Simon's brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Yeshua said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. I love this particular passage, and I want to touch on this a lot. Because uh, this, like I said, Mark doesn't actually record this. It's presumed. Uh, There are a lot of presuppositions that go into these ancient documents. The person who wrote the document assumes that you already know certain things before you even begin reading the document. We do this all the time when we write letters back home, Uh, or send a text or something, uh, there are certain things that we say and that we do, and we presume that the reader will understand. And we don't feel a need to uh, expound on every little thing in order to create clarity. The same is true with ancient documents. We assume, Mark assumes that you already know that this Jesus fellow, that this Yeshua, um, is a rabbi. And... We get this from Luke. Luke later expounds that he's basically an ordained rabbi. Um, And then Matthew definitely has a a really good case for him being a rabbi as well. Um, But Mark just assumes it. He assumes that you already know it, so he doesn't feel the need to expound on the fact that he was 12 years old in the temple and that the teachers were amazed at his level of understanding. Um, Another thing, he was not schooling the Pharisees. The Pharisees were amazed at his understanding. Um, That's a very clear difference. But Yeshua is a rabbi. He is an ordained Pharisee, begins his ministry at around the same time that a Pharisee would be old enough to begin having disciples of his own, about the age of 30. You have to study for almost 20 years before you can become a rabbi uh, in the ancient faith. And so it's not of any kind of consequence that we see him in the temple at the age of 12, at the age of a bar mitzvah, And then his ministry doesn't begin until he's about the age of 30, which is about the age, according to the Talmud, when you can hold authority and become an ordained rabbi, receives micha. So, that being said, this means that Yeshua would have been a known person around the area. Um, Rabbis are a very highly looked upon uh, figure, a public figure. (laughs) Much like a pastor. A lot of people know the pastor, right? And so if the pastor has a child, let's say, and that pastor's son is going to study to be, uh, uh, get his doctorate in divinity or whatever, everybody sort of expects then, therefore, that he will be taking over the church or even starting his own church. Um, much in the same way here, uh, Yeshua is about, he's, he's received his ordination as a rabbi and now it's time for him to take on disciples. He didn't just go up to random people and these random people didn't know who he was, and then they were like, oh, okay. And then they dropped their whole livelihoods to go follow him. Now it's more likely that they knew exactly who he was and that everybody was out anticipating that they would be called upon to be um, a disciple of a rabbi. Just a little context, the reason you would do that, the, the system back then, not everybody had a Bible. Um, almost nobody had any kind of access to the scriptures. And it's even written in the Talmud that the uh, the only way to get closer to God is to cling to a teacher. And that since Bibles, Torah scrolls, everything was so expensive and very rare and hard to get, not everybody could get one. Even synagogues rarely had Torah scrolls. A lot of the times they instead had Targums um, or even just scrolls of different prophets uh, instead. And they would use that to uh, teach Torah from those if they couldn't afford a Torah scroll. So your only avenue by which you could learn the word of God and learn the way that you're supposed to live is to be a disciple of a rabbi. But a rabbi can't just take on thousands of disciples. He can only pour so much of himself into so many people. A lot of people can sit and listen into these teachings, um, but only so many can be disciples in which he would pour his self into these uh, uh, other disciples and teach them everything that he knows so that they could go And do the same thing after a certain number of years and so back then the idea was you had to cling to a rabbi in order to be closer to god so these men were not just being called upon by some random dude in a in a white toga with a red sash and they were like oh he seems legit let's go that's not at all what was happening um he would have likely been known and everyone was likely waiting to see who he would choose as disciples And if you were ever given that opportunity, you would also likely drop what you were doing and take that opportunity. because it's a very rare opportunity to be had. And so the the, the concept, essentially, I'm just trying to get rid of the concept that he called random people and these strangers didn't know who he was and they followed him. That's not what happened. More than likely, culturally, contextually, uh, he was a newly ordained uh, rabbi and he was uh, picking disciples. And so people were just going to jump on the chance as soon as Uh, they had the opportunity to study under a rabbi, especially if they knew the philosophy of this particular rabbi already. We'll actually get to that in a minute, about how to identify the different philosophies of different rabbis and whether or not you would like to study that philosophy of a particular rabbi based on a certain question that you would ask, and that would determine if that's the rabbi you would want to study under in in this time period. So, uh, going uh, going on, going a little further... uh, He saw Jacob, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat uh, with the hired hands and followed him. Uh, Once again, this is not just a random um, stranger calling out to random strangers. This is most likely a a popular figure in the area, uh, and everyone's waiting to see who he will choose for disciples. And so um, they're not just heartless people feeling uh, i i don't like over spiritualizing anything and i feel like we tend to do that sometimes with things like they were called by the spirit uh and they had no idea who they were following or what they were getting into but they went anyway i don't think that that's the case um i think i feel like that's a little over spiritual nothing wrong with an over spiritual overlook but that's just not the exegesis that i tend to get out of um, using historical context sense and so um once again he was not a stranger he would, they would have known and they would have waited which is why they drop everything and the father is okay with that the, the father doesn't seem to hesitate there's no indication that he fought with them um, because he knows better the father is older in his age he's not going to learn anything uh, new or of anything uh, importance uh, basically his time is up but his son's not so much and they get a chance to study under a rabbi and in fact hopefully one day become rabbis themselves and so the father is totally okay with it and lets it happen uh, so it's not a problem. <laughs> so moving on, um, they went into Capernaum uh, right away on Shabbat, on the Sabbath day. He entered the synagogue and began to teach. Uh, interesting. Once again, more proof that he is a rabbi, a, a figure of authority. Um, now, in today's in today's synagogue, any male can be called upon to teach at any given moment, and so it's important for every head of the household. Uh, to be familiar with the scriptures mm, excuse me and to be ready for the torah portion because you might be called on to give a lesson on it um, however if a if a rabbi shows up and that would be a special guest kind of appearance in which case the rabbi would usually give the lesson because you know it's he's a rabbi especially if he's not from the area so if, if he's a guest he comes in gives his lesson and then moves on from there. So he he enters into Capernaum, so now he's a a guest, uh, and he begins teaching in the synagogue as a rabbi. And they were astounded at his teaching. Uh, Verse 22, and they were astounded at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the Torah scholars. This is a very important distinction I'd like to point out, and then we'll end the the lesson here, and we will continue uh, onward after this. But The reason that that is a distinction that Mark makes, Mark once again being the closest to the source, very uh, familiar with the Jewish, um, uh, basically Mark assumes that you're a Jew reading this, more or less. Now, Jews are really, really good about giving credit where credit is due. And by that, what I mean is if you ever pick up a book of the Talmud, uh, or any book with any kind of commentary in it, uh, an ancient book particularly, you will see that every time a rabbi gives a teaching, he teaches in the name of another rabbi. And sometimes you'll see a chain of rabbis. We'll see rabbi, you know, uh, actually, so here's a here's Talmud. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but you will usually see a chain of rabbis being spoken of sometimes. you're like, uh, it'll say, um, in the name of Beit Hillel, right, which is a, a rabbi named Hillel the Great. You have, uh, according to Beit Shammai, another rabbi of a different school. And then you'll see things like Rabbi uh, Hanina said in the name of Rabbi Eliezer, who said in the name of Rabbi Naftali, who said in the name of Rabbi Yacha. Basically, what they're saying is, I received this teaching from this guy who received this teaching from this guy who received this teaching from this guy. And usually they'll go as far back as two or three but the implication is that they received that teaching all the way from Moses and that Moses taught this thing. And then that it, the chain goes all the way down until it comes down to Rabbi Eliezer or Rabbi Hina uh, and that they're just passing it along. And so that's that's what they was being mentioned here as one having authority and not as the Torah scholars, because the Torah scholars usually always give credit to some other teacher. They n- almost never taught their own um, teachings they were very particular about passing down the traditions exactly as they received them <clears throat> and not adding to or taking away from any of the, uh, the Torah teachings. There were two particular schools that were received as authoritative, Shammai and Hillel being the two big ones, and usually they would teach within their own authority in certain areas as far as rulings for how to carry out certain commandments, um, but usually a uh, particular teaching in, in, in a Torah context is something that was passed down so he makes this mention because it is a it is a uh, an exception to the rule yeshua is teaching without giving any credit to any other rabbis which is different it's it's unusual for a rabbi to do that um and so they were astonished at both the level of his teaching and that he was not giving any credit to anybody else implying that this is his teaching Right. And we know later on uh, from John 1-1 that he is the word made flesh. So he, he is the authority on which um, the teachings would be the final say. He's the living word. But that comes a little later on. Mark is pointing out here that there is a, an issue with that or some, it's something about that stands out. Um, and that becomes important later on. Uh, so we will, uh, we will end this uh, teaching there. Uh, we're about halfway through the first chapter of Mark. Uh, as we go, we will continue moving forward in a more historical manner, um, putting everything back into its historical context so that when you read through the Gospels, everything makes sense. It's not you trying to figure out what it says. It's There are certain presuppositions that are implied um, that we don't have because we're 2,000 years removed from the document. Um, but with that being said, I think that's a good place to uh, end this for today's lessons uh, so next week i will see you we will continue in mark chapter one thank you for joining uh seamus's new testament study and uh we uh we hope to see you again have a good uh, have a good week